You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Lido.com. Once you are there, it says enter a code. 1208-1208 is your code. Type that in. Here's how tonight's going to work. I'm going to read through like two long chapters in which Jesus monologues forever. Like if you pull out your Bible, it's just red letters for as far as the eye can see, baby. All right? So he just keeps going, and it's on themes that we don't love. And so you don't hear this preached a lot in church. You know, he gets into things about judgment and hell and, and uh, uh, being ready for his return and what the end times look like. And a lot of times we don't talk about this in church because so many people have abused these themes, have put um, weird interpretations on these themes, have changed everything around from what Jesus meant, taken it out of ancient culture and put it in modern culture, tried to, well, you've maybe heard plenty of things where like, in Revelation, right? There's locusts coming with metal teeth. People are like, that must be a helicopter. You know, like, no, hang on. Let's back up a minute. <laughs> and let's understand how prophecy works. Let's understand how Jesus works, what he's saying. So just to catch you up to speed, if you're new with us tonight, we're just going through the Gospel of Matthew, and here's what's been happening. Jesus is God in flesh. That's the way that the Bible phrases it is that God takes himself he puts himself in a human body subjects himself to be born of a woman and he has taken on the likeness of a son of man a human being he is the human being there's lots of human beings in the world but none of them have got it right he is the one the human being who gets it right because he is God himself And as he goes out and does ministry as God in the form of a human being, when he gets to Jerusalem, he's basically coming home. Because Jerusalem, I know this sounds weird, but maybe it's best understood like this. Jerusalem in the Bible is like where God used to live. (laughs) I know it sounds strange because God's everywhere, you know, like he's omnipresent is the word we use. But at the same time, God throughout the Bible has specific places that are more sacred because he dwells there more tangibly. Um, Just like sometimes when you leave church, you're like, man, I could just really feel God's presence today. That's what I'm talking about. Like there's an extra kind of layer that he is here sometimes. In the Old Testament, he used to kind of, well, first he lived in Eden. This was his temple. And then humanity was kicked out of Eden. So he moved into a tent and he went around the desert with the Israelites in a tent And then finally we get to the kingdom where the kings are like, God, we want to build you a temple, not just a tent. We want to give you like something nicer. And God's like, all right, so you could build me anything as nice as I deserve, but sure, go for it. (laughs) So they build him a temple and this is in Jerusalem. So this is like his house. His presence is here until Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel one day is like, I had this prophetic vision. I watched God's presence leave this house. He's not here anymore. So come the time of Jesus, Uh, They try to build a new temple in Jerusalem that's even more glorious, as though, like, maybe they'll beckon him back by going even more over the top. And Jesus comes back. He is God, right? And so now he walks into his homeland. He walks into his kingdom. He walks into the place where he used to live. And what happens? 
People treat him like he's a king there. It's Palm Sunday. They lay down branches. They lay down cloaks. They let him walk. He comes in a royal procession on a donkey. Jesus is being glorified as the king. They've been waiting for a Jewish king to come, for a Messiah to come. And now it seems like he's here. Even though many of them don't understand that this is actually God himself come back to his house. That is what's going on. Jesus gets there and he's instantly kind of upset with the place. He starts turning over tables in a sacred place. You've turned my house into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. And he starts taking it back. He starts calling out injustice. He starts talking about the holy people there who have been supposedly living holy lives but are actually hypocrites doing some pretty awful things. And we've been talking about that. Now Jesus has done all that, and then the disciples are thinking, you know, the kingdom's coming. The king is here. He's moved into his, his hometown. He's in Jerusalem. So, Jesus, the end times must be here. Tell us about the end times. And boy, does Jesus do that. As I said, he's going to go on for a while. So I'm going to read to you two chapters And if you have Slido up, as I go throughout this, if you don't have questions, you're smarter than me, okay? (laughs) There's a lot of questions throughout this. I'm willing to take on whatever questions you want as long as they seem fit to our conversation, okay? So as I read, just put some questions on Slido. At the end, if you have questions, we'll go through those. And if not, we'll uh, get ready to wrap up, I guess. So if you want to read along, I'm in the ESV in Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another. uh, Sorry, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. When will these things be, and and what will the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. I am the Christ. Sorry. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter 
or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in a field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set over him all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour, he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him in the hypocrites, put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. 
Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid the master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have at least received what was owned with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even that he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the next one's a bit more popular, so I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. But it's the sheep and the goats. So based on what you've just been hearing, you know that like the next parable continues the same theme, right? There's a bunch of people in front of Jesus. He's about to make a judgment. Sheep and goats kind of look similar, but he knows the difference between the sheep and the goats. So he's, he's peeling them out. Those who are sheep have done good mission work for Jesus. They've taken care of the poor, those in prison, uh, and just love those around them, taking care of the oppressed. Whereas the goats are these ones who haven't done that, and they get sentenced to this place of the weeping and gnashing of teeth, this hell, if you will. So with that being said, we've got a few questions up here. Uh, we're going to jump in. Appreciate you guys working with me tonight. I just wanted to give you guys the space to ask the kind of questions you want because everything that we've talked about today, we could have easily spread out over another month or two. So the abomination, abomination. The abomination of desolation is the first question. Uh, the Bible a lot of times likes to quote... Uh, likes to make references to passages all throughout the Old Testament. Okay? New Testament does this all the time. In this case, the abomination of desolation 
is coming from the book of Daniel. Uh, in fact, Jesus or Matthew expected that you knew what he was talking about. Did you catch that? Because Jesus is like, when you see the abomination of desolation, and then in parentheses says, let the reader understand, right? So it's like he's talking cryptically, almost as though he's calling someone out without using their name, maybe to protect Christians down the road who are spreading the Bible around if they find out this guy's been mentioned in their book. Anyways, most commentators would say the abomination of desolation uh, had happened before Jesus' time, in which Antiochus, the... What's IV in Roman? Four. Four. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't go very high in Roman numerals. Antiochus the fourth. Um, Antiochus the fourth in Roman numerals in. What am I say? Antiochus the fourth uh, moved into where God's temple is. Uh, kind of started doing war there, taking things apart, and then what people often did when you took over an area was you put idols of your God in that place. So most commentators believe that Daniel was referring to this future moment in the book of Maccabees, which is not in our Bible, in which Antiochus IV moves into God's temple, burns things down, and then puts a a statue up of Zeus and calls people to worship Zeus instead. This is God's holy place, and now a foreign God has been installed in this place. It's the abomination of desolation. Now, That's what it was in Jesus's time. So when he's saying, let the reader understand, they would all know that. But since Jesus has already seen that happen, it's almost like he's talking about, you know what happened with Zeus being put in God's temple? Think of that, but blow it up to a bigger proportion. Because down the road, there will be an even bigger abomination of desolation. And rather than Jesus seeming to talk about just an idol, it almost seems like he's talking about a person one day who will tried to take worship upon himself, which is to some extent what you see Revelation do several times. So as the abomination of desolation, that's, that would be what commentators would say Jesus is referring to. All right, what does he mean by there will be wars and rumors of wars, literal, spiritual, or otherwise? So uh, you have to understand this, okay? When we read Revelation today, we're thinking of it as a prophetic word, Right? We're thinking of it as something that hasn't happened yet. But you realize that a lot of what Jesus said was going to happen already happened back then. Right? Rome had wars. Greece had wars. All these places had these wars going on. Uh, Likewise, Jesus said there would be earthquakes all throughout their history. We have these records through those areas of earthquakes. Uh, he said that there would be rumors of wars. These things already happened. So he, he wasn't talking necessarily to us. It, he hasn't come back yet, so he was talking to us. But to some extent, Jesus was also talking to his current audience. And he told them there's going to be wars. And there were wars. In fact, I don't know if you caught this. At the beginning of today's passage, he said, all these stones that make up the temple, it's all going to be thrown down. That happened 40 years after Jesus said it. So we're not waiting for that prophetic word necessarily to come true anymore because it already did. These wars and rumors of wars. Yeah, we'll see that again because that's human nature. But some of that already happened in the Bible. So literal. Yes. Now, you said spiritual. Uh, Is it literal? Are these literal wars, literal wars or spiritual wars? These are literal wars. But if you want to take it into a spiritual element, did you notice Jesus said the sun's going to stop shining? The moon's going to stop shining. The sky's going to be shaken. The heavens are going to fall apart. Stars are going to fall to the earth, stuff like that. 
You have to understand, in uh, ancient thinking, stars were gods. They were angels. Revelation even shows you that that was their thinking, right? Because Jesus holds seven stars in his hands, which the Bible says these are actually angels. So in their mind, stars are up in space. They're moving around because they're not in the same place every night. Things that move are alive. Therefore, these things that are up in space, we know that you know, they're not all uh, spiritual beings. But especially in the Old Testament, that was their thinking. These are the sons of God. These are spiritual beings. These are the gods. So when Jesus says, when I'm coming back, the sun's going to go out, the moon's going to go out, the stars are going to fall. Jesus is saying right there, like, that's spiritual warfare, right? Everything is just going to fall apart when Jesus comes back. Because the spiritual world, just as much as the physical world, the spiritual world has this big battle going on as well, as the Bible shows time and time again. And Jesus is showing us, like, when that all goes out, like, everything bows before him, right? Psalm 82. Psalm 82 has God in a throne room in front of a bunch of, it says, the little G gods. There's only one God, okay? Understand that. There is only one God, but the Bible also paints a picture that he has made other spiritual beings. He's granted them authority to rule over nations. That's what Deuteronomy 32 says. And these spiritual beings can be identified in the Bible as little g-gods. They're not God. There's one God. But they can be called little g-gods, demons, princes and principalities, elements, uh, angels, the sons of God. The list goes on as to names that uh, these stars, these spiritual beings would be in their thinking. So Jesus shows us, too, all of space, all the spiritual world will be fighting with each other and fall apart and bow before Jesus Just like in Psalm 82, when God tells all of these little G-gods, you guys are going to fall apart. I'm going to judge you. You're going to face judgment, even though you're immortal because you're spiritual beings. I have a way to do away with your immortality, which in Revelation is the lake of fire. Yeah, I didn't see all that coming. Okay. Uh, (laughs) What does the trimming of lamps mean? Yeah, let's answer this because this is a cultural thing. Did this one weird you out? It's like, why is there this parable about Jesus and then he's a bridegroom and ten virgins come his way? What's going on here? Weirded me out. I never knew what to do with that. It's a cultural thing, okay? So like in our weddings, we have uh, bridesmaids and groomsmen, right? In ancient times, you were... uh, It seems that in ancient times, um, somehow there would be these uh, friends who were virgins who would come alongside the bride and the bridegroom. So the, the bride and the bridegroom have just got married. They go and they're waiting to go home. All of the virgins, these people who are part in the wedding, go to wait for them to come home. But while they're there, uh, there's these, uh, these girls who didn't put enough oil in their lamps because they're like, eh, we're not going to be here that long. And then there's these girls who put lots of oil in their lamps because they've the trimming just has to do with how much oil they have, more or less. Uh, so you've got the ones who were smart and the ones who were stupid. And then you've got uh, uh, when, when the girls who didn't have enough oil run out, they have to go at midnight to a vendor. This is before you got Meyer 24 hours, right? <laughs> they have to go knock on someone's house and be like, I'm out of oil. Give it to me. So when they come back. Uh, they find out that the bridegroom, Jesus, has already arrived while they were out doing things that they should have been prepared for. You see where the parable is going? Right? So when they arrive, Jesus is like, look, you should have been ready for me. You can't come into this feast anymore. 
So Jesus is just in that parable reiterating what he has already said throughout the rest of that message. All right. Uh, oh, this is continued from a previous one. Sorry. For centuries we've experienced. Oh no, we can we can do that. Okay. For centuries now we have experienced uh, wars and rumors of war, and nations and kingdoms have continued to turn against each other. Earthquakes, famine, and other disasters are always present somewhere in the world. Are we sure we aren't already in the end of ages? So for this one, I take from Jesus who said, I don't know when I'm coming back. Angels don't know when I'm coming back. There's only one guy who knows when I'm coming back. And that was God. I understand that. Like, Jesus actually, did you notice, like, he said, I'm going to be back within a generation? And he didn't, right? I mean, let's just be honest. The world is still not in its perfect state as Revelation paints that it one day will be. Jesus did not come back in that generation. Now, a lot of people freak out about that. Honestly, I think that's just the way that you need to understand how prophecy works. When we first start hearing about prophecy in the Bible, Jesus says, or sorry, Jesus. When, when we first start hearing about prophecy in the Old Testament, it's like if a prophet says something and it doesn't happen, they're a false prophet and get rid of them. But as the Bible goes on, God starts teaching them better how prophecy works. He tells Jeremiah, look, I'm going to sometimes give a prophetic word. And if it doesn't come to be because the people didn't respond to it, just know, like, I have the power to change that prophetic word. If I speak a prophetic word and it is my prophetic word, but it doesn't happen, that doesn't mean it was always a false prophet. Sometimes it does. But sometimes it just means that God spoke the word. They responded and it changed the word. For example, Jonah, right? God speaks the word, go to Nineveh, tell him I'm going to burn the place down. But then the place repents and God's like, okay, I take back that word. I'm not going to burn the place down anymore. That's God working with prophecy. So we could have, I think, personally, could have had an alternate history where Jesus is like, I'll be back in a generation, but then didn't, uh, but, and then came. But instead, it seems to me that a good way to understand the prophetic there is like, I was like, I'm going to make all this happen in a generation, and a bunch of it started to happen. But then God, for some reason, and I don't know the reason, decided to wait. Or maybe he always planned on waiting and we just misunderstood. I don't know. Um, but the understanding of how prophecy works gives you that flexibility to see it that way. So as far as to like, when does Jesus come back? Are we already in the end times? Here's the interesting answer. From a biblical standpoint, after Jesus was resurrected, guess what? You are always in the end times. <laughs> because this is like the last phase before the end comes. 2,000 years, we've been in the end times. We thought it would come sooner. Even the Bible authors thought it would come sooner. Sooner Towards the end of that one generation, Peter wrote in the Bible, he's like, uh, generation, a day for God's like 1,000 years, I guess. So he's very patient with us. He wants more to be saved. And so he's waiting to come back. So if you want to know like why it's continuing to take so long, from a biblical standpoint, it's because God is too patient to give up on humanity yet. That's a good thing to take away. Because I know you just heard a lot of feelings of judgment and difficulty in these passages. But the reason none of that's come yet is because he just loves you too much to do it yet. Still wants to give you a chance to come to him. Okay, so... Hope that helps out. Uh, what do you consider the end of the age means? Uh, so again, sorry, I just answered that uh, without knowing I was going there. Does anyone hear that? I think the stage is like peeing. Or, yeah, it's right there. 
It's a good thing we get it. Hey, we get a new roof in two weeks. Guess why we're getting a new roof in two weeks? Because the stage is peeing. All right. Um, So end of the age is everything after Jesus. We are currently in the end times. When the end times come in its fullness, it will move into the resurrection. Resurrection, by the way, is not the idea that we die and go to heaven. That's before the resurrection. When we die, we go to heaven. The Bible says resurrection after that, according to Paul and Revelation, is Jesus then gives us new bodies like he had when he was raised from the dead. We put on these new bodies that are imperishable, as Paul says. You can't hurt them. Uh, They're like, you'll be basically Superman, you know. Um, And then we come back to the earth. We come back to Jerusalem. We come back to his holy place. And all that's left is heaven on earth, new heavens, new earth. So just dying and going to heaven, that is a truncated gospel. That is what most of us have been taught. We are just trying to tell people, like, I'll fly away, right? (laughs) We're just going to take to heaven and end it there. Resurrection is about going to heaven when you die and then coming back to the earth when Jesus fills the earth with only his loving presence and God comes to dwell here. That's Revelation and Paul... Paul's picture of what that is. Um, why do the writers decide Jesus, sorry, why do the writers slash Jesus decide this was the proper moment to talk about the end times? I think that's simply because Jesus just walked into Jerusalem. He's in his homeland. He is in where his presence should be, where God's presence should be. They're about to make him king. And so what's going through all the disciples' minds is this is it. This is the end times. This is what we've been waiting for. The day of the Lord has been prophesied throughout throughout hundreds of years that one day God would come and make everything right and take his presence back in this place. That's what Jesus is doing. And so the disciples are are prodding him. Hey, what's the signs of the end times? They're they're basically here, right? Tell us about it. They didn't know we had like 2,000 more years ago. Let me uh, check in our time. I'll give us five more minutes. Um, Should we invest the master's money, talents, or feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit prisoners, etc.? Should we invest the master's money? I'm not sure what the question is there. We should do all those things. Um, So just so you know, in that parable, Jesus's big deal wasn't like, go invest your money. Um, It's a parable. So talents in that parable, talents was a measurement of weight. It's like the heaviest measurement of weight. Okay. So for Jesus, it was like, I've got, uh, I'm giving you guys a very weighty uh, piece of, of value go and bring the kingdom of heaven in with what I've given you. The ones who double it and do good with it are the ones Jesus is like, good, you used my, my talents, my giftings, my money. Well, you know, you can take that in many uh, allegorical directions. Um, but then there's that one guy who's like, I'm just going to bury it in the ground. Like he messed up. Jesus says like, you should have done something with it. When I come back, I shouldn't just find that the gifting I used, that I gave you, was just squandered, buried in the ground, did nothing. I expect some return upon investment, right? Some ROI. Jesus, the good banker. Uh, Why did the... Sorry, I think we got one more here. Who's not SpongeBob? Guess it doesn't matter. I just need... It's not SpongeBob. All right. Matthew 25, 29 to 30. Those with talents given more and taking from the talentless. 
How does this passage compare with Matthew 25, 35 to 40, where it's like, for I was hungry and you gave me uh, food (laughs) naked and you gave me clothes, right? Um, Do you realize like everything I just read to you is like two chapters of Matthew? So a lot of times we put verses and chapter headings and chapter numbers all throughout our Bible and we forget to read it the way it was. This is why people sometimes have horrible interpretations of the Bible. It's because they'll just open their book and look at one passage and be like, oh, Jesus said that. Yeah, well, if you just back up a few paragraphs, you'll realize he said something else first. And that paragraph was supposed to make sense with that. So if you notice, Jesus lays out what the end times look like. And then he tells one parable reiterating the end times that you need to be ready when he comes, just like he just said. Then he tells another parable about when he gives you stuff to work with, you need to use that, which is reiterating just like the end times are coming. Be ready, be quick. And then he tells another parable uh, in which there's the sheep and the goats, and he's choosing those who took care of those uh, who were oppressed and needed help, right? All these parables, um, these compare all together. You know, the question was, how do these passages compare? They compare, they're in that spot for a reason, okay? Matthew, when he was writing this out, he was thinking in his head, all right, so here's all Jesus' teaching. What were the parables he said that reiterates this? Let me just write those down next to it, okay? Your gospel writers are thinking the order as to what they're going to write things, which you especially see when you get to the gospel of John, because John's like, I'm going to put the end at the beginning, the beginning at the end, change all these around. Like, he's not being untruthful with the Bible, He's just trying to tell you the story of Jesus with new thematic order so you understand what Jesus was doing. So in the same way, these parables are all next to each other to teach you what Jesus just said, but now in a parable form. All right, last question. Why don't those, and the band can come up, why don't those with oil share with those who ran out? What does this look like in today's terms? Should we not help our fellow believers? Absolutely, we should help our fellow believers. In fact, when Jesus says to take care of the little ones around you, you know, I've always looked at that as like take care of the poor around you. But Jesus also uses those phrases like take care of the Christians around you. So by all means, the very next parable talks possibly not just about taking care of the poor, which is a part of it, but also about taking care of the Christians around you who are about to be oppressed, as Jesus just said. Right. So absolutely take care of the Christians around you. Here's where that gets different, though, okay? Like, the way that every commentary I was reading on that parable of the virgins, like, a lot of them kept using the word stupid. They kept saying, like, these five were stupid, these five were smart. They should have known in the middle of the night to take more oil, but they did not care. So, when their lamps ran out at midnight... And these ones over here, the smart ones, like they had enough oil to get through the night. And these ones are like, give us your oil. Guess what's going to happen when they do that? They're not going to have enough oil to get through the middle of the night. Now everyone's going to just collapse. No one's going to be there when the bridegroom shows up. So the idea is like you kind of have these like Christians who just like don't really care about the bridegroom. You know, they're not necessarily, you know, their thoughts aren't really on Jesus. They're not really following Jesus I would say in the parable, the way they're set up is like, because Jesus tells them like they can't come in, which is the idea like heaven's been closed off to you. So these are like people, if you will, who say they're Christians, but aren't Christians and want to borrow uh, all this oil over here. So 
It would have destroyed everyone, first off, if they were to do that. But secondly, remember this is allegory, and allegory cannot perfectly be applied to every scenario. So if you're wondering, like, why didn't they share, I would say to some extent, like, that doesn't mean you don't share with others. It just means, like, the parable doesn't perfectly connect to every last element, right? I just wrote, like, a book that was all allegory, and if you tried to make every element of what I did work out from a biblical perspective... It wouldn't work because that's not how allegory works. It's, there's always imperfections that you run into. So with all that being said, you just covered about two months of preaching and 30 minutes. Good for you. Thank you for asking questions. Uh, if you found this helpful, just let me know later because it's something that I wouldn't mind doing every once in a while. I find it a lot of fun. This is actually how we do our podcast every week if you tune into that. We just take a passage and we just kind of break it down piece by piece as we go through it. Um, So with that being said, there's a lot of different elements you could take away tonight. A lot of different things that maybe your mind's only focused on one thing that was said and not the rest. We're going to enter into a time of worship and I just invite you, whatever that theme is that's on your heart, just submit that before God and uh, allow him to take you deeper in those directions. You can take on whatever posture you'd like as we worship. Would you please start by standing with us if you are able. If you would like prayer for anything, there will be a prayer team in the back corner. Feel free to ask them and they will happily pray for you for whatever you need. We are a church that believes in miracles, not just in healing, but uh, just in your everyday life of what's going on. Because we've seen God make a difference in our lives. So feel free to grab prayer for that.